Welcome to this uh, 43rd episode of the Atlas Society Asks. Uh, my name is Stephen Hicks. I'm a senior fellow at the Atlas Society, and I am uh, guest hosting this week in this uh, weekly program. Uh, today we're joined, joined by uh, Jose Cordero, but before I introduce him, I want to just remind uh, Zoom attendees that you can ask Jose questions during the webinar just by clicking on the Q&A icon. You'll see that at the bottom of the screen. Those of you watching via YouTube can use the uh, comments section there, put your, uh, your, your questions there, they will be gathered and forwarded to us here. And we'll uh, uh, be listening to Jose uh, for about 45 minutes and then uh, we'll get to as many questions as we can after that. All right, well, Jose Cordero is an unusually accomplished man with uh, many projects on the go. He's a graduate of MIT as an engineer. He's an economist, a futurist, and an author of uh, a dozen books. The most recent one is uh, The Death of Death, not yet published in English, but coming out in Spanish and a half a dozen other languages. Uh, he was born in Venezuela. He serves as the executive director of the Ibero-American Futurists Network. He's vice chair of Humanity Plus, director of the Millennium Project, and he's a fellow of the World Academy of Art and Science. He's also been a strong advocate of sound monetary policy and dollarization in both Eastern Europe and Latin America. Uh, optimistic about advances of technology, especially with uh, respect to ending aging and uh, defeating death as the title of his latest book says. Jose, uh, thanks a lot for joining us today. It is my pleasure to be here with you and all the friends from the Atlas Society. Yeah, all right, let's, let's plunge in with some uh, kind of near future crystal ball gazing, although that's uh, perhaps a little uh, 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 understating the, uh, the excitement and energy around this area. Most of us are familiar that we're on the cusp of perhaps another uh, revolution on the scale of industrial revolution, electrical engineering revolution, computer revolution. So AI and robotics uh, in overall in the next generation, can you say a little bit about how they're poised to transform the world and us? Um, well, everything is going to change radically thanks to the advances in technology. Uh, robots are going to be doing a lot of work for us. Artificial intelligence also will help to automize um, most of the labor and to improve um, productivity, efficiency. And then we will have biotechnology, nanotechnology. We will be able to 3D print almost anything in your mm -hmm. home. You don't need to buy it. So, so many things are moving very fast exponentially. Mm -hmm. All right, there's a, uh, in the popular literature, a big divide between the techno optimists and the techno pessimists. So everyone's aware of the transformations, robots and, and so forth. Your sense though, overall is optimistic against the techno pessimists. Why so would you say? Uh, well, there are always negative people, as you mentioned, mm. and uh, in terms of technology, we have the famous Luddites, the Luddites in right. Britain that began destroying the machines because they said that the machines would take away their jobs. Fortunately, the machines won, and that is why we are living in such an advanced world with so much technology and so much prosperity, because uh, it is thanks to technology that uh, humanity advances, uh, well, besides freedom, which is fundamental as well, but sure. technology helps to increase the standard of living around the planet. Yeah. Okay, uh, while we're on this thread, go back to the, the Luddites, because 
you know, as, as you know, that's a common argument that comes up every time there's a significant new technology. People are aware of existing jobs and the new technology seems poised to replace those jobs. And then what people see is the people who are going to be out of work and uh, perhaps they think, uh, well, maybe they're out of work, but it's very difficult, we think, for those particular people to get new jobs or whatever. So what, what's your standard response to the Luddite argument? Well, that technology is what has helped humanity to advance. Um, mm. Let's say 100,000 years ago, when we were living in Africa, we were basically animals without mm. technology. And mm -hmm. then we invented agriculture. Agriculture helped us to build cities and to advance, to create different jobs, which right. were more interesting than find food, just food. And then the Industrial Revolution created many more jobs. Uh, and so we keep on moving up the ladder. And, right. and I think it is positive. It is positive. Uh, for human achievement. It is very well explained in the famous uh, pyramid of um, Abraham Maslow of the hi hierarchical needs of uh, humans. Mm. Yes, okay. Uh, so if I could come back, a kind of Luddite criticism on this would be, you, know, you speak about improving humanity in general. I think everyone would, would accept that with 2020 historical hindsight. But uh, sometimes the argument comes back is to say, well, I'm not talking about humanity in general, I'm talking about this particular group of people. So maybe the automobile comes along and I can see that that's great, but what about the blacksmiths, the thousands and thousands of them who were making shoes for horses? Now they are out of work. So is it a trade-off that some particular group needs to be damaged or, or sacrificed in order for this overall welfare to happen? Well, I think we need to be flexible towards the changes created by technology. Uh, for example, as I said, a um, hundred thousand years ago, we were all hunters gatherers mm. and then agriculture was invented and basically 80% of humanity became farm farmers. Yeah. And now the USA is the leading example uh, in agricultural production with only about one and a half people working as farmers and incredible amount of food being produced as opposed, yeah. I repeat, a century, two centuries ago when 80% of Americans were farmers. Yeah. Okay, so that's to, to focus, uh, say, on the robotics side of it. If we switch over to uh, AI, artificial intelligence is kind of the new kid on the block and making great strides with machine learning and, and, uh, and, and, and various sophisticated algorithms. And uh, sometimes, uh, again, the techno-pessimist argument comes back because we're worried about you know, our intelligence perhaps being the uniquely human thing about it. So if they're going to take away our physical jobs with the robots, and then even our thinking jobs with the artificial intelligence, uh, what's left for human beings? So if I can push a little more on the techno-pessimist, how would you respond to that kind of line of argument? Again, we are going to have more uh, free time and more interesting things to do. Mm -hmm. By the way, uh, when we were living in Africa, thousands and thousands of years ago, there was no Saturday, there was no Sunday. In fact, Sunday, the first free day off, was uh, an invention maybe a couple of thousand years ago. And mm. then Saturday, uh, besides Sunday, was an invention of maybe a couple of centuries ago. So I do think it is feasible that soon we will have three days uh, for the weekend. We will have more free time and more wealth thanks to freedom and technology.
All right. So the idea then is that the robots and artificial intelligence will enable each of us to be more productive. And to the extent that we're more productive, then we can trade off wealth and leisure time, have more leisure time or become more wealthy if we choose. Yes, and they will be producing more for us. I mean, uh, robot technology and uh, 3D printing, nanotechnology, they will create a, a fantastic amount of wealth. So there will be more output for less input, all for humanity. Yeah. Okay, focusing uh, further on the, the issues of artificial intelligence, of course, there's very interesting cognitive issues, philosophical, psychological, about what intelligence is. Um, and how intelligent we think artificial systems can become. And right now we're, you know, we're impressed with uh, uh, programs that can, can, can beat the best chess players or the best Go players uh, and so forth. Uh, but all of those seem to be uh, what we call task specific intelligence, right? So it's a, a, a program that is, can do one particular thing, but outside of certain parameters, it can't really learn to do something dramatically different. And then we humans, of course, have lots of task-specific intelligence, but we also have general intelligence. So can you tell us a little bit about the prospects for artificial uh, general intelligence? And that takes us into the concept of singularity, if I'm understanding it correctly. Yes, fantastic. And for that, let me change my background because uh, this is about the singularity. And uh, when I was a student at MIT, one of my favorite professors was Marvin Minsky. Oh, Marvin yeah. Minsky was one of the three creators of the idea of um, artificial intelligence in the 1950s in the USA at MIT. And um, this idea of artificial intelligence is uh, still very well alive and moving faster and faster. So much that my other friend from MIT, Ray Kurzweil, who was also a student of um, uh, Marvin Minsky, he wrote his book, The Singularity is Near, in 2005. Mm. And just this summer, he plans to release the continuation, which is called The Singularity is Nearer, because... Yeah. It is closer, closer in time. So the idea is that um, uh, according to Ray Kurzweil, we are going to pass the Alan Turing test by 2029, uh, which means that um, in nine years, 10 years, we will not know anymore if we are talking to a human or to a machine, to an artificial intelligence. So mm -hmm. that... Um, this is moving fast. The idea was originally developed by Alan Turing, who was a British scientist. And um, we, artificial intelligence will continue improving until the year about 2045, according to Ray Kurzweil, my friend, who says that then uh, we will reach the singularity, which is the time when uh, global artificial intelligence will have the same aggregate power or aggregate intelligence as all of humanity combined. Yeah. And this will be a fantastic time because then we will probably increase our human intelligence with artificial intelligence. Yeah. All right. So uh, let me drill down a little on the, the technical stuff here. Is the claim, uh, Turing test aside, that, that means that we won't be able to detect the difference between speaking or interacting with a human and interacting with an perhaps artificially intelligent machine. And then using that as to, to say, therefore we're dealing with an actually intelligent machine since we can't tell one way or the other. 
Uh, is the leading project uh, on the path to the uh, artificial uh, to the singularity to figure out how we humans uh, abstract, generalize, and take information learned in one domain and apply it to a new domain, and then find a way to instantiate that in uh, non-human systems? Or is it uh, the, the way you were starting to speak uh, that human beings, or sorry, the computers will have so much computing power that they will be able to aggregate all of the data and then just raw brute force crunch through all of the possibilities to come up with a new solution. So can you say a little bit about what, uh, what kind of algorithms or processes are being developed to acquire general intelligence? Excellent question. And there is a still no complete answer. In mm. fact, there is disagreement. Uh, and there was disagreement uh, at the time of Marvin Minsky and the other two co-founders and creators of the concept and the name of artificial intelligence. But yes. uh, we believe today that intelligence has to do with pattern recognition and yes. how to apply a pattern from one situation to another situation. But if we look at it, um, in animals and even in humans, uh, when a baby is born, he basically has the hardware, he has his brain, but the brain is not yet connected. There is no, There are no patterns in the brain of a baby. So the baby is not truly intelligent when he's born because he has no information in his brain. So it takes some time for those neurons to connect. And once they begin connecting, how they react with the environment and how they do pattern recognition. Something mm -hmm. which is really beautiful is uh, normally even a child does not recognize himself in the mirror. And this is a very standard test of intelligence, the mirror recognition. Um, it, it, very few animals actually recognize themselves in the mirror. Yeah. Even a dog doesn't seem to recognize uh, themselves, which is quite funny because we think dogs are very intelligent, but they don't recognize themselves on the mirror. Mm -hmm. Monkeys do, elephants do, dolphins, uh, also do, which is very interesting. And babies, after about a year and a half, babies for the first time are able to recognize themselves in the mirror, mm -hmm. which is a very important component of what we call intelligence today. Yes. All right, so there's pattern recognition, which is one element. And then you're adding a new component of self-recognition. Uh, at least this is a, a recognition of your bodily self as reflected in some other surface, the mirror test and so on. Does any part of the uh, intelligence, at least intelligence as we humanly understand it, involve uh, a self-awareness? So it's one thing to recognize patterns out in the environment, but then to be able to distinguish myself as, a, as an inner or a, kind of an inner psychological life as distinct from what's going on out there. Uh, and so that, you know, if we build some sort of self-consciousness into our understanding of intelligence, then of course the question would be, when can artificial systems be said to have such a thing? Well, again, there is no consensus yet on many mm. different positions, but the issue of consciousness is fascinating and it is still an open issue. We don't know, uh, actually, I don't know if you are conscious. I imagine you are conscious because I believe uh. I am conscious, but I am also, 
I could be a simulation. There is a lot of discussion that we live in a, in a simulation. Right. So uh, yeah, identity, consciousness, uh, self-awareness, all of these things are being discussed. Why? Because we still don't understand intelligence. We don't even understand intelligence on animals that are relatively not very intelligent, even like a cockroach. Yeah. So, okay. so it is a wide open world, but the exciting thing is because we are building these huge machines that will have more transistors than we have neurons, that eventually it is possible that a consciousness and intelligence will arise. There will be an emergence of intelligence in the machines. This is possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you give us a, a very quick statement then of what is meant by singularity? I know it's a term of art, but what, what are the boundaries and criteria of it? Um, well, normally, uh, most people define the technological singularity as the moment when artificial intelligence um, reaches human intelligence. And a way to compute that um, is uh, the number of transistors and the speed of those transistors and the number of interactions, connections among those transistors or neurons, comparing neurons and transistors. So what is the computational power of a brain versus the computational power of a computer. Okay. And, um, and computers actually, as most people know, are advancing very fast uh, following Moore's law, which is an exponential law. So yeah. if this continues between 20 and 30 years, and according to Ray Kurzweil, precisely on 2045, uh, we will have machines that match the human intelligence. Okay, yeah, that's helpful, thank you. Uh, now, you sketched how much is known, how much is not known, and uh, estimates of the rate of progress, but also a lot of uh, fuzziness about the core concepts, identity, consciousness, intelligence, and so on. But sometimes there, there's some pretty precise numbers come up. 2029, we're going to reach a certain benchmark, or 2045, which is kind of comfortably a quarter century out. So how precise are those numbers, and, and like where are those numbers coming from? Why is it not... 2050 or 2040? Why 2045? Uh, excellent question. And these numbers uh, come from Ray Kurzweil, from my friend Ray. He has been making forecasts for uh, 40 years, uh, not from yesterday or even 10 years ago. He has been making these forecasts since the late 1970s, early 1980s. But what is beautiful is that he has been right uh, over 80% of the time. In fact, uh, he forecast when uh, IBM or, or a company or a computer could um, compete against a human on chess. Yeah. And he was actually wrong for one year, but uh. he thought it would be later. It was actually earlier. He also... <laughs> He also forecast uh, when uh, Jeopardy would be beaten by a machine, by an artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And he was again wrong because he expected this to be later and it happened earlier. Okay. And, uh, and now he's talking about uh, Alan Turing test by 2029. But this is moving so, so fast as everybody can see with uh, uh, computer systems and artificial intelligence like mm. uh, Alexa or Siri that imagine he's talking about 2029, but this could happen in five years. Um, in fact, the movie Hair, if you remember Hair with uh, uh, Joaquin Phoenix, uh, which is about 10 years old, in that movie, uh, 
the man, the, the actor falls in love with an artificial intelligence. And that happens in 2025 in Chicago. <laughs> All right, just down the road from me. All right, why don't you uh, change gears since uh, we only have you for one hour and focus on your work on aging and longevity. And uh, part of your techno optimism in general is uh, to, be, to be impressed and make strong predictions about uh, the progress we're making in perhaps reversing aging. And then your latest book has the very strong title, I'll use the English, right, The, the Death of Death, so that immortality is, uh, is within our grasp. And in fact, you have this very strong formulation as well that immortality already exists. So uh, talk to us about that. Well, it is my pleasure. And now let's go here into my book that is uh, in several languages now. First, it came out in, in my native tongue, in Spanish, then in Portuguese that I also speak. Uh, in French, just came out. I also speak French. So I, I am promoting my book in different languages. My book, as you can see, The Death of Death, uh, it's about immortality. And the incredible advances, they are so incredible because they are happening so fast, like in the last five years, 10 years, that most people don't know about this. Uh, mm -hmm. But I'll give you the example because immortality indeed already exists. I'll give some examples that some people might have heard about it, but don't make the connection. Uh, like cancer. Cancer cells are biologically immortal. Mm. Cancer cells are mutant cells that stop aging. Cancer cells do not age. Mm. Uh, cancer cells are used to be uh, somatic cells that age, but they didn't want to age, so they mutated and they discovered how not to age. And this was discovered in 1951, not mm. yesterday, not even 10 years ago, 1951. However, if you ask most people, people don't know this. Uh, even though this was discovered so long. And uh, this was discovered on a patient called Henrietta Lacks, who now is relatively famous in biology and medicine because she was born in 1920 and she died at age 31, uh, 1951. And uh, she died of a huge, huge tumor, cervical tumor, cancer. And uh, when the doctors extracted that tumor, they saw that the tumor kept on growing outside her body and grew and grew and lived and lived. And it is alive today. Mm. It's, it's like science, science fiction. The tumor yeah. is alive and yeah. it has already become over, over 100 years old, but it looks like a teenager tumor. And, uh, and we have known for that long that cancer okay. is biologically immortal, meaning that right. it does not age. It can die if you kill it. And that's the purpose of killing tumors so that they don't kill you. But a tumor's cancer does not age. Also, there are good cells that don't age. It's not just cancer. Germ cells that you have germ cells that make a sperm in men and eggs in women. Uh, germ cells also do not age they do not age. So mm. we have good cells, germ cells that do not age and bad cells. I hope people don't get cancer, but if you get cancer, they do not age. Mm. Additionally, there are small animals like the immortal jellyfish, some hydras and medusas that do not age. They are biologically immortal. And even yeah. more interesting, bacteria. Bacteria that divide symmetrically, that were the first life forms on the planet, 
they do not age. They are also biologically immortal. So the proof that immortality is possible is that life appeared to be immortal. Bacteria are immortal. Some small organisms are immortal. And you and I, we have immortal cells. All right. All right, that's fascinating. So that's uh, uh, to say there are some precedents in the biological world already for, for immortality. Now to, to scale it up to the, the human framework, obviously we've made great progress in the last two centuries in uh, more than doubling average life expectancy. Uh, and of course, a, a variety of reasons for that. A lot of it is eliminating a, a large number of things that used to kill us outright when we were, we were younger. But uh, where do you see the major frontiers for continued progress in uh, advancing longevity? So let me just say in the near future. Well, uh, normally people who are working on this, we talk about different bridges, different yeah. steps. Um, like um, Ray Kurzweil and some other friends, we talked about three bridges to immortality. The bridge number one was the bridge until now, which is a very simple bridge. Do as your grandmother told you. Eat well, sleep well, do exercise, don't drink too much, uh, try not to smoke, etc., etc. That is bridge one, very simple, uh, just to make us live a little bit longer. Then we have bridge two that is beginning now in the 2020s. Bridge two are the first biotechnology treatments. And then we will make it into the next decade, the 2030s for bridge three, which is nanotechnology. That will take us into the final bridge with artificial intelligence to immortality in the 2040s. Now, mm. in this bridge too, we have the first biotechnology treatments ever. Uh, we have senolytics. Senolytics is a new science of uh, eliminating senescent cells, which are zombie cells, old cells mm. in the body that need to be eliminated because they are old. So new treatments are appearing right now on senolytics. This has already been done with animals and mm -hmm. it has extended the life of animals 50% and more on, mm -hmm. on mice. On other animals, 100, 200%. Also, we have the first gene therapies. We have the first stem cell treatments. Um, we have cellular reprogramming, which is also science fiction. This is one mm -hmm. of the most incredible things. Just quickly, a Japanese scientist got the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 2012 because he discovered that four genes control the aging process in mice. And he made old mice young again, changing just four genes. And he got the Nobel Prize immediately because this is incredible. And I bet you most people don't know about this, that mm -hmm. aging can be reversed, changing four genes in mice. All right. That's fascinating. Um, so let's talk about some of the, the value implications of this. Uh, obviously, there's been huge individual psychological and social transformations in how we think about the meanings of our lives. I and mean, it's one thing to grow up in a culture where life expectancy is, say, in the 30s uh, versus in the, you know, at least my generation and your generation, we grow up life expectancies in the 70s and it's, it's increasing. So uh, the invention of uh, childhood, as we now understand it, uh, the idea of there being extended teenage years for self-exploration and higher education and so on, or the concept of, uh, of retirement, uh, do you foresee then 
similar transformations in our understanding of what it means to live a full human life if we start thinking in terms of 150-year average lifespans? Absolutely. Everything will change. Everything. Uh, to put this in perspective, as you said, uh, in the developed world today, life expectancy is 80 years or higher in the advanced world. Obviously, in poorer countries, it is 60, 65. But in North America, in Europe, it is 80 years or more average. A uh, hundred years ago, it was 40 years right. average life expectancy. And at the time of the Roman Empire, it was 20, 20 years average, okay? Of course, some people lived up to 60 and 80, but many people died when they were children. Anyway, so, so life expectancy has gone up from 20 at the Roman Empire to 40 uh, one century ago to 80, and soon to 160, it will double again, and then it will double again. So everything will change. For example, uh, as you said, retirement. Uh, retirement that was created on uh, pensions. Pensions were created by Bismarck uh, in Germany uh, because um, he didn't want a revolution, so he wanted to give some payment to older people. Uh, and that, that actually will not be needed. But why? Because people will stay healthy and young. That is the objective. It's not to live 200 years old. No, no. The objective is to live 200 years young. And uh, also marriage. The concept of marriage until death do us apart is gone because death will not do us apart. So marriage will probably be a contract, a 10-year contract. And after 10 years, you can renew it or you can uh, let it expire. Mm -hmm. So yeah, marriage, childhood, uh, adulthood, retirement will radically change once we live longer in healthy, uh, good shape. All right. That's uh, yeah, fascinating, all the value implications. I'm starting to think about the uh, the people again who are pessimistic. Uh, you know, most of us uh, think about extending our lifespan and possibly becoming immortal. We say, "Great, that's wonderful," but there are a lot of people for whom it's a, an automatic negative reaction. And so, I'm putting myself in the shoes of a of a few different types. Right, one side, of course, will be uh, people who are strong uh, environmentalists of the anti-human type. And they will see human beings as kind of a plague on the earth. And many of them are calling outright for the extermination of humans <laughs> to go to achieve uh, their vision of environmental health. So what do you say to them when they react uh, negatively? They, they want to say, no, we don't want humans to live longer. In fact, we want them to, to get away from, uh, from the environment because more humans living longer, that's just going to ruin the environment from their perspective. So how would you respond to them? Well, that they should lead the way, they should eliminate themselves. Uh, um, okay. I, I actually think, um, well, I don't think, the brain is the most complex structure in the known universe. Therefore, we need more brains, not less brains. The mm. problem is that the population of the planet actually is stabilizing and it is beginning to decline. In most of Europe, population is going down. In Japan, the population has been going down for over 15 years. In Russia, it is going down. Uh, the USA, it is still going up. 
partly because of immigration. But in most of Europe and East Asia, population is going down. And um, China, China will be an incredible demographic implosion, implosion. The forecast of China is that the population will be reduced by 700 million people by the end of the century. That is twice the population of the USA that will disappear in China mm -hmm. because of the one-child policy that was forced on the people. It's horrible, horrible. Well, all forced policies are bad. Uh, totalitarian regimes are pretty dangerous for that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um... So that then is to say, your answer is the environmentalists shouldn't worry too much because there are other forces at work likely leading in the direction of population declines. Uh, absolutely. And let me remind people of Malthus. Malthus, who was the British economist over two centuries ago, he said that uh, the world was overpopulated. When the population of London was 1 million, the population of England was 10 million, and the population of the world was 1 billion. And he said it was the end, it was the end. But fortunately, technology came in. The Industrial Revolution began, and the world uh, became wealthier, richer, and with lots of more people. And mm -hmm. the population today of London, Greater London, is. 12 million people, which is bigger than England when Malthus was alive, and there yeah. is no overpopulation. Yes, okay. Uh, another uh, kind of angle of criticism on this, and uh, I run into this sometimes when I teach my uh, uh, biomedical ethics course and, and go to conferences on those themes, is uh, people who are strongly religious of a certain sort who want to argue that all of this concern for longevity is uh, irreligious from their perspective that we're taking kind of life and death decisions into our own hands, that really those should be decisions made by God alone, and that really our aspiration should be to focus on the afterlife uh, rather than trying to, uh, to avoid the afterlife forever, as you seem to be taking us in the direction. So what would you say to that sort of religious criticism that says your naturalistic uh, valuing of life on earth is... Uh, is wrong? Uh, well, first of all, none of this is mandatory. If some people want to die, that is okay. They are free to die. Uh, you know, if some people want to age and suffer, they are free to do it. But for the first time in human history, we are going to have the technology not to age and not to have diseases. In any event, to your specific question, you should reply, you know, being eaten by a tiger is natural. Why don't you go out and let a tiger eat you, for example? Mm -hmm. Having cancer is natural, but we stop cancer. Having Alzheimer's is natural, but we want to stop Alzheimer's. Yeah. Having a heart attack is very natural, but we work against having heart attacks. So aging also, like cancer or Alzheimer's or being eaten by a tiger is natural. But yeah. today we know for the first time that aging is a treatable condition that we are treating right now in animals. We are rejuvenating animals now. This is not hypothetical. This is not in the future. This is now. We mm -hmm. are rejuvenating animals now and stopping cancer on animals, stopping heart attacks on animals before beginning on human trials. 
And this is just now in the last one year, two years. So it, it's beautiful, magic times. And people are not aware of this, but, but if they want to die, they can die. If they want to get cancer, they can have cancer, no problem. This is liberty, this is freedom. Those who want to, to die now, let them do it. Okay, all right. So in addition to uh, kind of environmentalists who see humans as a plague and so might not like your message and then certain kinds of uh, religious people who don't like your natural physicalistic message as well, a third category of people who uh, might have reservations, perhaps strong one, would be uh, government budget managers who are responsible for retirement incomes and to the extent that uh, economies adopt socialized or nationalized healthcare systems, uh, is your net message not going to be quite unwelcome to them? So if I'm thinking, I don't know, I'm a retirement administrator and I've got all these Americans who are retiring at age 65 or so, and right now the actuarial tables say they're going to have another 15 to 20 years of life. And so I'm already juggling the books to try to make sure I've got funds available to, to pay all of those ones. And here comes Jose Codero saying that uh, within a generation, they're all going to live another 20, 25 years. I don't have the money for that. And I don't think it's politically feasible to do so. So I don't want to hear what you have to say, Jose. <laughs> so what do you well, say about the, uh, the economic uh, budget managers here? Well, actually, uh, you know, uh, it is very sad, but 80% of the health budget is uh, used up by people uh, in the last two or three years of their life. Right. It, it is very sad, 80%. And still, people die. At least if we cure them of the diseases after spending 80% of the health budget, but they still die. So what we think is going to happen is that if using that money, if investing that money so that people don't age, there will be a longevity dividend. And mm. in fact, the cost of health will go down, not up, will go down because people will, go, will not be sick. People will not be uh, aged and in bad condition. And therefore also pensions will disappear. Why? Because we are moving in a world of prosperity, abundance, where people will be young and people will reinvent themselves. People will not retire. They can take two years of vacation and then restart again because they will be young and healthy. So forget about pensions. There will be no pensions in the future, but that's because we will be healthy. We will be young mm. and there will be a longevity dividend, which is very important to understand. There will be no bankrupt, just the opposite. There will be extra money because health will cost very little because we will be healthy. I see, all right, nice responses. Shifting gears again, I wanted to uh, ask you about the Millennium Project. Uh, what, what is that and where, where is it based physically? Uh, yes, I actually coordinate the Millennium Project for uh, Ibero-America, which is the expression for uh, the Iberian Peninsula in Spain and Portugal plus Latin America, and also Venezuela in exile. Uh, <laughs> the, the Millennium Project began in the 1990s as the futuristic part of the United Nations University, uh, based in Washington in the American Council of the American Na uh, United Nations University. But then uh, we became independent because the United Nations, one, is very bureaucratic. Second, mm. it is very politically correct and you cannot be politically correct with uh, Cuba or Venezuela or North Korea. 
So mm. people have to take a stand in life for some reasons. And therefore we became independent of the United Nations system. And now we are freer to talk about the trends of the world in the future. So we do forecast of humanity, all the global challenges, water, uh, food, uh, 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 democracy, um, human rights, etc., and, and etc. And uh, we see the condition of the world in 2050, 2100. We have nodes all over the world, uh, but the main activity, the, the director lives in Washington, D.C. Okay, fair enough. And then uh, Singularity University, uh, all these organizations with such cool names, you're one of the uh, founding faculty members of the university. What's the mission of the university and, and your role in particular? Yes, uh, Singularity University was founded by two MIT colleagues, Ray Kurzweil, a student of uh, Marvin Minsky, as I, as I explained, and Peter Diamandis, uh, who in 2008, they decided to create a university, which is not really a university, it's more like a um, executive training about new technologies. Mm. And it started at NASA Ames in Silicon Valley with the support of Google. And uh, later some other top uh, technology companies like uh, uh, Cisco and Microsoft and, uh, and other companies uh, to, to talk about the technologies transforming humanity. And the objective is that all top executives know about the singularity, about artificial intelligence and all the mm -hmm. new things that technology will bring and how humanity will be changed by technology. Also, we believe in freedom. And I used to celebrate when I was in Silicon Valley, Milton Friedman Day. Uh, I was also a fan of um, free market economics and Milton Friedman, uh, you know, was, was a visionary also in mm -hmm. terms of monetary policy. Right. Do, uh, we have only a few minutes remaining, but I wanted to turn to your, uh, your, your roots in Latin America and your, your work there. It's some way of progress over the last two centuries in Latin America, but a part of the world that seems to underperform. Uh, and then all of the progress and potential that you are talking about, it really depends on kind of a, a science-friendly uh, outlook, a healthy economy underwritten by a kind of philosophy, at least in my view, of reason, individualism, and freedom. Those seem to be uh, uh, strong in North America, although they are challenged in North America. But uh, what is your experience uh, in Latin America and the prospects for Latin America? Yeah, uh, the situation is very tragic. Uh, obviously, Cuba. Cuba has been there, you know, since the 1950s as a communist government. Venezuela now has been over two decades also as a totalitarian regime. Over six million Venezuelans, including myself, had to emigrate to leave the country. This is 20% of the population of Venezuela. It's not a small number, 20% of the population. So totalitarian regimes are horrible. And um, one way to control totalitarian regimes is to take away the control over money. That is why I supported um, um, dollarization that uh, is basically taking the local currency and substituting it by dollars because they cannot print dollars in Venezuela or in right. Ecuador. Right. Uh, obviously it would be better, much better to have gold. Um, but uh, 
an intermediate at least is to take away the local currency. And, and that is why I did, I worked as, as specifically in the dollarization of Ecuador, which is eliminating the local currency, also in El Salvador and in Eastern Europe also, many countries eliminated the lo local currency to have um, uh, the euro in Europe or the dollar in Latin America. And I think it is an improvement. It is not perfect. I have to make it very clear. This is not the optimum. But sometimes the perfect is enemy of the good. And uh, I think monetary stability is fundamental. And that is why I supported dollarization as an improvement on the local situation of many countries in Latin America and Eastern Europe after the fall of communism. Right. And then more specifically on your, uh, your, your home country of Venezuela, or your former home country of Venezuela, um, I know you've been very critical of the the Chavez regime and now Maduro's regime. Uh, and of course, you know, personal uh, family members strongly affected by the disasters there. What do you see as the prospects for, uh, for Venezuela in the near term? Well, it's very tragic, the situation in Venezuela. As I mentioned, 20% of the people have emigrated. And many people have died. My father died in Venezuela. And um, because there was also no health care available, and even worse, there were no airplanes leaving the country, so it was impossible to take him out of Venezuela. This is the situation of many people, not just in Venezuela, but in Cuba for uh, over uh, six decades. It's really horrible situation. Um, I don't know, because communist regimes don't want to give up. Uh, we have North Korea, we have uh, Cuba for so long, and because now they are also involved with drugs, they are drug dealers. Uh, mm. Over 80% of the drugs from Colombia are handled by the government of Venezuela. It is unthinkable. And they have uh, orders of um, a capture by the Drug Enforcement Agency of the USA. So the, the president of Venezuela and the generals, they know they have no way out. So they are in a catch-22 situation. It's a really, really difficult situation. I don't know what will happen. It will have eventually some, some kind of a explosion of the situation and maybe some lower rank military will revolt. But it is hard to say because as I mentioned, Cuba has been there for decades, mm -hmm. uh, North Korea, even the Soviet Union until it collapsed suddenly. So no one can foresee when the collapse would be. That is why I don't talk about politics as much as I talk about technology. Technology sometimes is easier to forecast than politics. Yeah, all right, great. All right, uh, some questions have come in uh, for you. And so I wanted to uh, cycle through some of those that pick up on the, the themes of our, our discussion so far. Um, one question is from Trevor Miller on Facebook asking, uh, it's one thing to uh, retrain a few thousands of, say, blacksmiths to, uh, to go work on, say, the Henry Ford assembly lines, right, and so forth. Uh, but now we are talking about a much larger population of people, including white-collar workers. So we're talking potentially about training or retraining a billion people or so. And it's one thing in the abstract to say, okay, uh, you need to be flexible and keep your mind open, be willing to move and retrain yourself. But what advice do you give to uh, uh, younger people and middle-aged people about how to think about retraining themselves for the new 
revolutionary economy that's that's going to be upon us. Excellent point, uh, because most of the new professions, the new jobs of the future have not yet been invented. Uh, we don't know, maybe half of all the new jobs in 10 or 20 years, we don't know them, they don't exist. So they will be created. Therefore, we need to be flexible and we need to be educating ourselves continuously. This is called lifelong learning. Uh, but just to put this in perspective, as, as you said, uh, blacksmiths who were very popular some time ago, or farmers, I think farmers are the example. 80% of many countries' population a few centuries ago uh, were farmers, 80%. And now the USA has one and a half percent farming people. So all those farmers uh, disappeared. And where are they? Well, no one knows, but we don't need them. One and a half percent of the population can grow mm. all the food that we consume. Uh, another more recent example are secretaries. Uh, there were many, many, many more secretaries before than there are today. And, and uh, uh, with technology today, we don't need all those secretaries or um, cashiers, uh, salespeople, or drivers. This is mm -hmm. a big issue because today, actually, drivers is one of the largest professions in the world. We have all types of drivers, uh, taxi drivers, truck drivers, uh, general drivers, and with uh, self-driving cars in 10 years, we will not need drivers. In fact, I think driving will be illegalized. It will not be legal in 10 years because mm -hmm. we kill over a million people driving. We are bad drivers. Humans are bad drivers. And we, we talk on the phone or we drink while driving or we fall asleep while driving. So we kill over a million people driving. Uh, once we have self-driving, when we have intelligent cars, they will not kill one billion, uh, one million, one million people driving per year. So, uh, but this is a big issue because millions and millions of people make a living driving and right. we don't yeah. need them we don't need them so we need to retrain people we need to change professions and this has to be done fast so education and open mind okay so uh, to come back on that you talk about being a lifelong learner and that involves a certain open-mindedness and an active mindedness uh it also involves a certain amount of flexibility to be able to you know acquire a new knowledge set uh, acquire a new skill set right and so forth and then toward the end of your comment, you come back to education. So a follow-up worry then is that contemporary education system, so if you think of mainstream schooling, doesn't seem like it's putting out as its project graduates who have that value set or that mental flexibility. So do we have a mismatch between what we think life and the economy is going to need in the next generation and the kind of students that uh, the, the, the contemporary school system is producing, who basically, you know, they sit there for 12 uh, years and just do what they're told. And uh, they do a lot of rote learning and they learn to tune out and be bored. So are we setting ourselves up for a, a kind of a collision in the next generation? Yes, and I am very afraid of that, especially in Europe. In Europe, most people uh, study to work on a public position. 
you know, the governments in Europe are much larger um, than in the USA or even in, um, in East Asia. So most people go to university with the hope of working in the public sector. And there is very little entrepreneurship, which I think is fundamental. Actually, I got my MBA in the top European business school, which is INSEAD in Fontainebleau in France. And uh, when I studied, there were no courses on entrepreneurship. Imagine yeah. on an MBA school, on a business school, there were no entrepreneurship classes. Now there are, but there should be more. And in fact, people should be more entrepreneurial. This is something that is lacking completely in education, certainly in Europe, but even in the USA and other countries, we need to rely more on ourselves and to be confident that we can do things, that we don't need to work for a government. And in fact, we should not work for the government. We should mm. work for ourselves, for our dreams, for our projects and create, innovate, be entrepreneurs. And you are right, there is a huge mismatch and I am worried about that. Okay. Very good. I have a question from uh, Joe Schioli from YouTube, who's asking about human free will, a kind of an agency, and I, and I think more broadly, some sense of control over our lives. Um, with AI and robotics making the strides that you are talking about, do you see, a, again, a, a threat there? So if, for example, you mentioned the self-driving vehicles, then one of the implications there is, well, we're not going to let you drive anymore. And then, of course, there's all of the, the, the social facial recognition and social identity and social credit and so forth, that a lot of these tools can be used to restrict our, our, uh, our, at least our autonomy in action. And then to the extent that we are merging robotics and intelligence with our, our biology, then we start to have restrictions on, on, on human free will as traditionally conceived. So what are your thoughts there? Um important considerations being hotly debated on all fields in different countries. We can see uh, what is happening uh, against some big companies, uh, certainly in Europe. You know, there are many lawsuits against uh, Google, against Facebook, uh, uh, against Amazon also, because they are not European companies. Uh, you know, so they are trying to overtax American companies. Uh, but, but indeed, um, there is a huge uh, new field about um, uh, personal rights, uh, personal identity, and um, what can happen to you because um, uh, you can be identified anywhere. Mm -hmm. In fact, your mobile phone, I'm looking for my mobile phone, but my phone knows where I am. Google, because I use Android, Google knows where I am. They know what I watch, what I like. Google knows me more than me, uh, myself, or even my mother. And this is actually a problem. However, there are also different generational views. Young people who are born now are more accustomed to all of these than older people who might like more privacy. In fact, there is a famous quote, uh, um, supposedly by Mark Zuckerberg, but others have said it, that privacy is over, get over it. Mm. So okay. it might happen, but uh, yes, there is a lot of controversy on that. Uh, these are open issues. No one knows what will happen. But again, I think, uh, you know, we are improving, uh, human conditions will continue, technology is positive, but yeah, nothing is guaranteed. 
Okay. A question from uh, Dean Scoville uh, about whether the, the likely political economic outcome of this is some kind of socialism rather than your preferred uh, liberalism, classical liberalism, capitalism, market-friendly expansion of, of human freedom. So uh, something like the following, you know, if the productivity gains that you are talking about are going to be so impressive, uh, then the limit of that is that we don't really need to work anymore because AI and the robots is doing all of the work anymore. So then we just become pure consumers. Uh, is that a realistic vision to think about? You know, all these are excellent questions and I wish I had the excellent answers or even yeah. good answers. Um, you know, there are many experiments on all of these because we don't know how we will react to all these changes. We, we don't know. Uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, several people actually are talking about a universal basic income. Mm -hmm. There is also a lot of discussion for and against uh, before I was fairly against, to tell you the truth, because of the reasons that you um, mentioned. Now, uh, I am still against, but I am open to consider this. In fact, even Milton Friedman thought about this as a negative tax, a negative tax for poorer people. Um, you know, these are very complex issues. We don't know what is truly going mm. to happen. But what I do know in terms of technology, which is my area, again, that's why I, I try not to talk too much about politics or even about economics because it is very uncertain. But in terms of technology, what will happen is that we will continuously uh, create more and more wealth with less and less income. This is a clear trend. Uh, yeah. Actually, you can measure it in GDP per capita. We have never been as wealthy as we are today. Even the poor people today are wealthier than the King of England two centuries ago. Sure. Okay, a couple of questions uh, focusing on COVID issues as obviously those are on everyone's minds right now, but uh, partly focusing on the, the marriage of technology and a certain kind of politics. As we saw over the last year in this high tech, new scary world, we have a small number of people who know something about the science and the technology. And that very quickly got co-opted by more paternalistic or outright authoritarian politics. So. Uh, is there a lesson from COVID that uh, the more technologically advanced we become, that some sort of technocracy uh, is going to result rather than a, than a freedom society? Well, but it could be a, a freedom society with more technology. I don't, I don't think these are yeah. uh, contradictory uh, issues, but, but you are right. Um, um, many new areas of uh, study, research, and uh, ethic implications, ethical, moral implications. But again, I'm a, I am an engineer from MIT. I am a practical person. Also, yeah. I am a capitalist because capitalism is the best system. I have to say it openly. There is nothing that compares to the the productivity gains, uh, wealth increase created by capitalism. And also I see what works and what doesn't work. Uh, socialism has never worked anywhere, anytime. Socialism is a disaster proven 
over and over again. Uh, and capitalism is just the opposite. It's the most successful system ever created by humans. Uh, but things are also improving because of technology. I do want to answer about the COVID uh, vaccines because also new technologies are being invented. When um, vaccines were invented, actually, the first ones took centuries, centuries really, until the first vaccine came out. Then they took half a century, 20 years, 10 years. Well, what has happened with COVID is incredible. Even with the totalitarian government of China, as probably some people know, the virus was sequenced in 11 days in China. And then it was sent by scientists, not by the Chinese government, totalitarian government, but the Chinese scientists, it was sent to other research centers like uh, Moderna in Boston or BioNTech uh, in Germany. They created the vaccine in 48 hours. Wow. This is absolutely magical. They created a vaccine in a couple of days without actually having the physical virus. They only had the sequence, the electronic sequence of the virus sent by the Chinese. And mm. then the human trials took about uh, nine, 10 months, which again is an incredible record. Uh, this has never been done in history. And that is also why there is so much fear about this new technology, because it is totally new technology, uh, which has not been proven. However, by now, I don't know the number, but I think it is already over 400 million people worldwide and over 100 million Americans have been vaccinated with different mm. types of vaccines. Uh, and you know, this is just not an experiment. 100 million Americans over 400 something million worldwide, they have been vaccinated. You know, if there was something funny or strange about the vaccines, we are just talking about millions and millions and millions of people. So forget about those conspiracy theories. I think we have to be scientific here. And again, uh, I haven't worked on the vaccines, but I am a technical person, an engineer, and I, I see this working. This is working to me um, and, you know, the the reality is out millions of people so i am going to be vaccinated i think it is uh going to be positive even though i don't think i need it but um as a moral responsibility for the people who are getting vaccinated i think it is positive but it should not be mandatory and i don't want people to be vaccinated if they don't want to be vaccinated. I believe in freedom. So for those who don't want to be vaccinated, you are my friend, you don't need to be vaccinated, but it is a free choice. I think it's a good technology, uh, but it's not uh, mandatory. All right, that's beautifully said, Jose. And thank you very much for joining us today. I'm uh, Stephen Hicks, I'm a senior scholar at the Atlas Society. And if you've enjoyed this program, or any of our other materials, please do consider uh, making a tax-deductible donation at uh, atlassociety.org. And join us next week when our regular host, Jennifer Grossman, will be back and uh, her guest will be Art Laffer. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you.